Well, Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Paul Dawson is a writer on Climate Solutions based in Glasgow. His newsletter and book club, Climate Solutions, um, provides subscribers up-to-date information on climate solutions. It's great for you. It's great that you could join us on Scotonomics, Paul. Great. Thank you very much, William and uh, Corinne. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you. So we want to know um, why Climate Solutions? How did that come about? Well, I've had an interest in climate change for probably over 20 years. Just, uh, I, I mean, it started initially, but actually I became quite fascinated by the CO2 numbers going up every year and there seemed to be very little attention being paid to it. And you could almost see like clockwork every year, it would go up by about 1.5 to two parts per million. Uh, and back then, 25 years ago, I kind of thought, well, this is probably gonna be a problem which economics was solved by itself the price of oil was going up and there seemed to be at that time peak oil seemed to be a real theory and something which people uh a lot of economics uh professionals thought was going to be what was going to save us from fossil fuel production and you know and move us into alternative energies but then you know the uh, fracking boom happened in the us alternative oil shale oil was happening in canada and suddenly the economics of oil production changed dramatically and for me that was kind of a bit of a turning point thinking okay we need this isn't going to solve itself we need to be actively talking about solutions actively thinking about them more and creating a case for why we need to move away now rather than wait until things run out which may not be for another 50 years when at which time temperatures would have risen a lot higher than they are now and a lot of the world's uh, population especially the poorer people will suffer a lot more as a consequence on that yeah that was a big concern for me as well i was re i read a book in 2006 called peak oil um and then moved back to scotland from the netherlands and got involved in the transition time movement because of my fears about that but yeah so and then thereafter well thereafter sort of i i suppose in the last uh five six years i've become sort of more concerned and a bit more active around climate change so around five six years ago I started actively posting on Twitter just sharing stories around climate change uh, stories I've I had I've read and sort of resonated with me personally and sharing a little bit of comments around them as well and I started building up a bit of a following and I thought oh this is interesting maybe I can use my voice to do a bit more uh, and I and I kind of thought actually you know a lot of the news stories we read are about you know more around doom and gloom around actually you know climate change is a huge problem we're not doing enough to solve it you know these are the consequences but not talking so much about the solutions to climate change and we have an awful lot of solutions out there you know the the problem is more one of uh, political and economic uh problem to be able to implement those solutions rather than those solutions not existing well, well, that's where we are now with the last report from the um, IPCC and um, with the the sixth, the sixth report from the IPPC, the, which says that all of the solutions and all of the finance and everything's there. It's just lacking the political will to do it. So, yeah, so as a very, we're in a very different position from, you know, from Karen, you reading that book in 2006 <laughs> and Paul, when you started your journey. I wanted to just kind of find out a little bit more about the book club. Um, 
And let's get into it. Could you recommend three good climate climate economic books for our um, viewers and our um, listeners to to read? Yeah, sure. So I've got three very different books here. Uh, one, the first book is uh, Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World by Jason Hickel. Uh, it's an excellent book book for understanding a lot of the history behind sort of capitalism and where we are now. Uh, it's, it takes you back through an economic journey, which is very interesting and also explains you know, some of the uh, some of the, the false assumptions or, or the uh, some of the incorrect data we've used to make decisions on. So, for example, uh, one key piece of data in that book is around actually, uh, you know, the number of poor people in the world and level of poverty in the world and how actually uh, capitalism has transformed that. But it, it, there's some key errors in how that data is put together. Uh, the, the data from recent years is used as household surveys, which is very accurate, but you go back beyond a certain area, so back 200 years, and it uses a different set of data and different set of assumptions, and then assumes that all the data is equal. And it doesn't really line up very well. Uh, the second book is uh, Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World uh, by Catherine Hayhoe. Uh, Catherine's a climate professor uh, in Texas, uh, and the book is a lot of talks a lot around the importance of communicating uh, climate change, talking about climate change. Uh, one of the key things around uh, talking about climate change is, you know, we talk about what we care about, and the more we talk about it, the more we're able to influence other people. And one of Catherine's key ideas is around actually we shouldn't focus so much on carbon footprint but we should think more about our carbon shadow and our carbon shadow is the areas where we have influence over so you know if you work for a company you know you can speak to uh, your leaders of that company around climate change and ask them what they are doing about climate change for their company you can you know talk to your local council you can run for local council uh, you can speak to your friends and family everybody has people who they have some influence over and we can sort of by talking about climate change, we can sort of shift the, the dial a bit and make people vote more on climate change and uh, yeah. Yeah. make uh, make it a part of their day-to-day decision-making. Yeah, I do a lot of um, consulting in the events industry, but I've been persuading event organisers to be much more sustainable and to consider these things because they're not doing it at an individual level. You know, I would quite often organise a dinner for a thousand people, you know, so if we provide, if we provide a vegetarian main rather than a meat main, you know, that's three years of one individual's consumption of meat. So there is so much that you can do when you kind of state that. But I really like that. I like that carbon shadow. I think that's really, really good. And the third book? The third book is a little bit different. Uh, I've just read it. It's Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kilmer. And what struck me about this book in particular was, I, I think it's the first book where it's really changed the way I think about climate change. So early on in the book, uh, Robin asks a class of her ecology students who are undergraduate students studying ecology, uh, can, you name, uh, can you name a place or time or an instance where humans are 
positively benefiting the environment, not not just sort of uh, building wind turbines and saying, but actually enhancing the environment around them as well. So living in balance with it, but actually improving it. And none of her students could name anything, and neither could I until I read further on. <laughs> but uh, but actually, it made me think about actually we're so separated from nature as humans. You know, we completely live next to it rather than with it and i think actually sort of changing our mindset around this and thinking about actually how can we how can we incorporate our solutions into nature more so that they enhance nature mm. and not solving the human problems uh, and i think actually that would probably produce solutions which are better overall for the planet and for people a similar question that I've come across is to say that um, humans, let's say humans inhabit a new planet, what animals do we take with us for this world to survive? And it's a really interesting question to ask because you're thinking, well, we need things to pollinate the plant. really just helps you start to look at the, the provision, the, the ecological services that we get from, from ecosystems. I think it's a really interesting way to look at it. I haven't considered it that way around. I think mean, that's a very, very fascinating mm -hmm. way of looking at it. And again, forces you to think quite deeply about what adds value to our lives. Yeah, I mean, Jason Hickel alludes to that um, concept of dualism that is that that came from Descartes uh, in Less Is More, and you know that, that this way that we have existed and seen nature as something to be plundered rather than something to uh, a lot of uh, indigenous populations see it as a, a family member, you know, and that, that uh, we are, you know, are the stewards and we've really got to be cognizant of that. Absolutely. I, I fully subscribe to that, actually. And it's, uh, I like the, uh, the seven generations way of thinking about things as well. You know, sort of think about, you know, are we improving the world for the seventh generation, not just the next generation or our generation, and thinking really, truly long term. When we're looking at the kind of economics of the climate crisis, a lot of people focus on the ways to reduce carbon use. Um, and I thought it'd be really interesting because I followed one of your fascinating threads on Twitter was about this idea of a personal carbon budget. Would you like to kind of go through that for us and explain what that would look like and what impact it would have? This is an idea which has been talked about quite a lot over the past few years. And basically, the way it would work would be you would set a budget for all of the households in the country, and then you would d divide that budget up amongst the people equally. So at the moment, I think the average uh, emission per person in the UK is around nine tonnes per person of carbon per year. Uh, but it's not evenly used up so at the moment uh i think the the top 10 percent of uh, of producers of uh emitters in the uk if you like uh, use as much emit as much uh carbon as the bottom 40 percent so if you were to set the level at just above the average to start with uh you would then give everybody an allowance of say 10 tons of carbon per year you would find the people uh, who have high emission lifestyles, so people who fly a lot, have huge cars, maybe very big houses, uh, they would quickly use up their budget and they would have to buy more from people who are using their budget much slower, which would tend to be poorer people, generally speaking. So you'd 
one of the benefits is you'd also have a transfer of wealth from richer people to poorer people at the same time providing incentive for richer people who have the uh you have both the options to be able to reduce their emissions more both for through improving you know the decisions they have around their lifestyle they could choose to fly less or they could choose in extreme cases not to go by private private plane uh, they could choose to insulate their house more they could choose to uh, you know buy an electric car rather than have a uh, a petrol or diesel car but also they could they have the options to be able to not do things as well which uh, people on lower incomes don't always have the choices to do so it would drive the emissions to, would drive the emissions down from the highest uh, highest pollute the largest polluters in the UK uh, individuals and at the same time uh, give more income to lower income people but you know one of the keys to uh, the carbon budgets though is that each year you would reduce it slightly so year one is 10 tons year two is say nine and a half tons year three nine tons and so what you're actually doing is you're reducing the overall carbon uh, emissions from UK households. And actually, this is something we don't really grapple with very well in in many countries. You know, we we look at reducing emissions over individual things, but we don't look at the whole. So, you know, we're looking at reducing emissions from uh, transport by electrifying the road system for example you know we're, we're banning uh, petrol and diesel cars from I think it's 2030 or 2032 i can't remember now but uh so that's going to massively reduce emissions from transport but we're not doing anything with planes you know people might just be flying more and actually air travel is forecast to rise over the next 10 years this would be uh you know a properly kind of regulated and official um process where everyone would you know uh, through an app or something like that, I would imagine would get their would get their carbon amount and uh, and would then trade that with with people who were in the market. So that's similar to the cap and trade that that currently um, certain businesses, high polluting businesses, do in in, in the UK and across, across Europe. Wouldn't it? is it the same kind of principle? Essentially, it's a, it's a very very similar principle. It's just on an individual level rather than at a, a company level. Uh, that is essentially the, the main difference. I mean, but there are some logistical challenges with the personal carbon budget. You know, for example, what do you include within that? Mm. Some things would be very easy to include, say, household energy and uh, transport, for example, because that's already, you know, added up automatically pretty much. But other things would be more complicated. For example, the food we eat, you know, you'd need some sort of uh, mechanism for being able to track those, uh, that carbon spend as well. But but I would recommend, you know, you start simple. You start with the easy stuff. You do transport, you do household, and you move on from there. And it's an approximation, isn't it? It's it's roughly roundabout. And, you know, if you travel, if you travel to, you know, if you fly to Mallorca with your family once a year, you know, then you've got, uh, you know, let's say six tonnes of carbon. But if you're flying every week to Geneva, then you know that you're going to have 600 tonnes just from that. So it's, it's, a, it's a rough approximation. You're going to be in a situation where you can know um, to pretty closely how much carbon that, that, that you're using that's that's fascinating i mean is, is there anyone else talking about this but there's been quite a lot of uh, attention in the press and you know, it comes up uh, now and again but I mean, there's been a few small voluntary sort of trials but uh but there hasn't been anything sort of official 
uh, done yet, which is a, is a shame. I think sort of someone needs to sort of take it forward, even if it's a sort of local level. Uh, I mean, there are other advantages to this as well, in that, you know, by focusing on the emissions from the highest polluters, there are also the people who are decision makers often and the people with most influence to be able to, you know, go to the people they're buying their services from and demand lower carbon services. Mm. So, I mean, if you take air transport, as you mentioned, it, you know, there's a big difference between traveling economy versus traveling first class versus traveling in a private jet. You know, the, I, I think a first class traveler uses something like eight times as much or something as an economy traveler, you know, because they're taking up more space in the aircraft. Uh, and and so, you know, you could drive changes as, as well at sort of uh, this more industrial corporate level as well. I mean, if if electric planes were to be rolled out faster for short haul transport, you know, that would make a big difference in those carbon emissions as well. Yeah, I think with this, we, we need for, for things like this to work. It, it's about having a, um, a, a substitute, isn't it? Because otherwise it can be seen as a real kind of punishment but you know, for example, you know, let's say, let, let's say having a burger, you know, as a kind of plate, you know, if if you if there's too much carbon in your burger, if you want to have that same burger experience, you have a you have a kind of vegan or plant based burger. But it's, it is about having that substitute, isn't it? And and I think we're in the situation now where we can look right across right across society and all the things that we do and all the things that we have, and there is a greener alternative for almost all of this. So there is an alternative for people to move who do who do feel or, or who have to reduce their carbon. And as you've said, but also the other option is as a redistributive and that they can buy carbon credits for, from people who are not using it. So I think it's, that's fascinating. Do, do, do you know how that how that's different from a kind of more traditional carbon tax? So a, a carbon tax is uh, is really the other way around almost. So basically, the, the government will come in and say, "Okay, we're going to put a we're going to uh, put a price on carbon. We're going to tax these items, and then it will pass those taxes on to the company who will pass the money back to the the government." I mean, ultimately, it gets passed on to the con end consumer, but it's there's no trading element on that. And the government then decides what it's going to do with that extra money. Is it going to reduce other taxes, give it back in a dividend, mm -hmm. or spend it on something else? You know, and that would then be a you know normal democratic choice through governments. Um, there's something which is coming in with restaurants soon, where they're going to have to start showing the number of calories on a meal. Mm -hmm. And you know, you can then see, okay, do I want this two thousand calorie uh, ice cream uh, extravaganza, or do I want to go for this? 300 calorie more modest thing you know and you, and you appreciate the personal trade-offs from that you know maybe yeah. 300 calorie things not so not so tasty but <laughs> yeah. you know a lot easier to work off uh but if you have the same thing as well you know put the carbon yeah. intensity of the different foods on the menu you know people yeah. then have the information to be able to make the choice you're not forcing anyone yeah, without forcing. I think that would be fantastic. I know that there's an, a rough approximation that the, the more calorific a meal, the the more carbon that's likely to have been um, used in producing that meal because because meat tends to be uh, more calorific than than, than vegetables and prunes. So it, it's like a rough approximation. So it's not too bad. And I think there will be a lot of research to see what impact this has have that this has had. And I think it will be substantial because some restaurants have been doing this for years. 
Um, I can't remember. There's one particular chain in the UK that's done this for at least at least ten years, and it definitely has. It's it's that kind of ceteris paribus. If all things are equal, you're going to go well. The ones with less calories, and that can make a really big difference. So 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 that's that's really interesting. So we're heading towards some kind of solutions now. Um, do you want to give us an idea of some of the other solutions that you think, uh, let's say, would be relatively easy? to introduce that would make a substantial benefit towards reducing individuals, countries, or organizations' carbon? Sure. So, I, I mean, a lot of the solutions which get a lot of attention are the more glitzy technological ones, but actually insulating your house is a very low uh, tech solution, but can have a ma massive, uh, would have massive implications across the UK. You know, the UK has got you know, a particularly old, uh, old housing stock, you know, a lot of our houses have been built in Victorian times. You know, a lot of these houses have been subdivided into flats and not always particularly well. A lot of them are you know, quite drafty. Uh, and, you know, spending money insulating those homes would, would have a number of other benefits as well. I mean, you're, you're lowering emissions permanently. Uh, it's relatively low cost compared to other solutions. You're also uh, lowering the energy costs for millions of people. And particularly uh, lower income people. You know, at the moment when energy prices are you know sky high, you know this is this is a perfect time to be really investing in uh, in insulation. Uh, I mean, another area which is really quite fascinating is heat pumps as well. Uh, again, not very glamorous, but uh, considerably more efficient than uh, than traditional gas central heating, which you know most of the UK is heated by. Uh, and you know, there's some quite high uh you know startup costs for uh in initial costs for heat pumps but you know once they start getting rolled out on a mass scale you know they're going to come down dramatically and i, I think heat pumps insulation are the two biggest things i would vote for uh for reducing the uk's emissions fantastic actually i mean i've read that probably solar panels are maybe a better option because of course you need an energy to run the heat pumps as well so i'm not i'm I, you know my probably say insulation first and then maybe look at solar panels before heat pumps the, the best way to reduce energy consumption is to insulate homes and as you said that all the benefits yeah. there's there's no downside to this and it's incredible that even now in the uk's energy strategy that was released just last month there was nothing about insulation or very well, little. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing is, is there's no there's no profit motive, really. It just it means that the big energy companies, they you know they 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 they, they want to sell energy, and if we keep reducing the amount of energy that we require, then that's a problem for them, you know, because that you know we're living in a capitalist world, so we've got to got to move away from that. But I was going to come back to the carbon credits. So this is an idea that I've come across maybe about a year ago. Steve Keen, another economist that we, we've had on the show, he talked about it in one of his podcasts. And I think it's a really great idea. I think one of the criticisms I saw on your Twitter page was, you know, perhaps you would maybe end up with people scooping up loads of poor people's carbon credits. But I still I don't really know what the disadvantage of that is, because if they're getting money, then, then that's probably maybe a good thing. And if it's as long as they're not like the Russian shares for Gazprom, where they're just issued once, if they're issued every year, then um, yeah, that, that should eradicate that cost. And then going on from your what you were talking about from the third book, from your carbon shadow, well, Steve went on to put himself forward as a candidate for the new 
Liberal Party in Australia as well. And I just want to give a shout out during this programme as well, that I've, this morning I've just heard that in the Highlands, there is only eight women standing for the council elections. There is something like 30 odd candidates. So, you know, really ladies watching the show, if anyone's telling you to stand and you think you should stand, you should probably stand. <laughs> so, and use your carbon shadow and get into places where they have a budget and you can affect how that budget is spent. So obviously we're speaking about the climate crisis. What role do you think economists and economic theory has in changing our approach to the climate crisis? I, I think sort of a, a massive, a massive uh, effect. I mean, I think actually we need to sort of realise that actually economics drives a lot of our decisions in our lives, you know, whether we like it or not. Uh, and you know, and I think there's some things which can be done at sort of very large scale, you know, around sort of uh, cap and trade or personal carbon budgets. But there's also sort of much uh, smaller scale which can have a big effect as well, like sort of nudge economics and sort of nudging people into making the right choices. Uh, and you know, there's been a lot of research around this showing that actually, you know, the way you order people's choices can make a huge difference in the decisions they make. So. I, I mean, for at a business level, you could say in a restaurant, for example, you could put the low carbon choices at the top of the menu rather than at the bottom of the menu. You could uh, include more vegetarian options as well as the meat options. So you're not forcing anybody to do anything, but actually you're going to be make a huge difference in your organization's carbon uh, footprint doing this. And, you know, this could be sort of followed through all the way through as well, through uh, huge areas so into shops, for example, uh, supermarkets where you place different products uh, would have a big, make a big, big difference. And, you know, you're not taking away anyone's choices. You're just changing the default option for people. Well, when I when I was working in the um, you know so the in the events industry, um, I was speaking to a lot of the hotels, and I was saying to them, um, it, people are really influenced by what they think other people are doing. And for example, if you put something in your hotel room that says two thirds of our guests use the same towel for more than one day, that measurably has a significant impact on the uh, activities of the other people entering. And I remember reading about this. I actually saw a presentation, it was probably about seven or eight years ago. I'm thinking, this is just fantastic. And I started telling my clients, now I go into hotel rooms, it's still exactly the same. There's very few nudging there's very few instances of nudging going on to change people's behavior and, and i just find that i suppose fascinating in the sense because if you're a hotel you don't want to wash as many it's much cheaper for you to wash less so there's real these these incentives and i think that's kind of where i wanted to finish paul is that how do we go over this that there's really clear incentives there's a really there's a logical process to a lot of the solutions we've covered in this but why aren't things happening why do we seem to be stuck in this position where certainly from my perspective we're not moving it anywhere near a fast enough pace that we need to to really start to talk about getting to net zero emissions and then start thinking about drawing down the carbon that's in the atmosphere already i i mean i, I always fall back on to you know what are the incentive systems for people to do different things you know you know is it is it in the case you just sort of described around hotels you know it's it appears to be in everyone's interests to use fewer towels pretty much but you know by just changing a label, the hotels could, you know, save a lot of money on laundry. Probably 
the towers will probably last longer as well, uh, save money and detergent, etc. Uh, but they're not doing it for some reason. So I, I wonder if the person responsible for making that decision gets any benefit for making that decision. You know, uh, you know, what are their incentives? If if you had some sort of maybe profit sharing, uh, profit share, sharing sort of uh, a solution within those. Uh, environments where you know sort of all the staff are encouraged to come up with solutions to save money and to save carbon and they get to sh keep a share of those savings as well perhaps that would drive some of those changes through faster well that just shows the the importance of that incentive doesn't it and, and you know and, and a financial incentive still at the moment is really powerful it's been fascinating spending a little bit of time with you well before you go i'd like i'd like you to tell us a little bit about your book club because i've just joined it and i really i'm looking forward to the first recommendation do you want to tell the viewers and the listeners and the listeners a little bit about it yeah thank you very much yeah so uh so this i started this book club at the end of last year I basically started by sent out a tweet saying, does anybody want to read one book on climate change a month and then meet up over Zoom to discuss it? I was hoping to find, you know, sort of five or six people around the world to have a, you know, spend an hour or a month with discussing a book. I thought it would be quite fascinating. I sent it last thing in the evening. I woke up the next morning and saw there was like over 100 replies to it. <laughs> so I thought, oh, <laughs> I need to set up something a little bit more formal to this. So I, I set up a, uh, a newsletter on Review, which is Twitter's newsletter platform. And it's free to join. And uh, uh, once a month, I, uh, once a month the members uh, nominate books. I pick five at random, and then we vote on those five in the book club. And then uh, once, a meet, once a month, on the third Thursday of every month at 7.30 UK time, we meet up and uh, we discuss the book. We fascinating. I noticed you've got over seven hundred people subscribed to that book club. So even if you're getting, you know, just fifty people attending, there's probably seven hundred people reading these climate books, which is which is proving that you're having a good carbon shadow, Paul. So it's <laughs> good. You. It's good that you're um, that that you're. Um, putting into action some of the things that you're saying. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Um, it's been fascinating hearing your thoughts on climate solutions. Yeah.